It's good to be in this place. Uh, it's, it's actually been kind of a tough week for me, honestly. I, I've two, uh, two longtime friends passed away in the same week, both one of them slightly older than me, one of them slightly younger. I did uh, the funeral of the younger guy yesterday, and then I also found out that a third person I know, um, her husband passed away uh, in California, again, a young person. So it was a reminder that life is short, life is fragile. If you're putting off making any decisions, if you're putting off reconciling with someone or telling someone something important, don't wait. If, if you know God wants you to do something, do it now. It also tells me the, the subject of that song Robert just sang, Jesus. He's the reason why life is worth it. If you think that your life is bound up in the things of this earth, then you just don't know how quickly it can all go away. You come to know him. And that's what we're talking about today. The life of Jesus, the impact of Jesus the man who changed everything, the most impactful person, the most influential person who's ever lived. So turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Mark 4, verse 35. Uh, I gave Nathan the wrong scripture references, so if you're looking at your uh, worship guide on the back, just go with me. It's going to be up on the screen. We're going to start with 4, verse 35. Now, when I was growing up, we had a dog named Freckles. You can probably guess why we called her Freckles. She was spotted. She was an Australian cow dog, Australian shepherd. Uh, she was a literal working cow dog. We had cattle, and, and she was this big, woolly, gruff dog that lived in our backyard and pretty much ran the place. She was a great dog, very intelligent, but she did not abide any intruders. Let's just put it that way. Now, along the way, when I was still a preteen, uh, we adopted some orphan kittens that had been born in my, father's, my grandfather's dairy barn. He brought them over to us in a feed sack. This is the country, people. And uh, so this litter of kittens became ours. And we weren't really cat people, but my brother and I, who's younger than me, we, we both really doted on these little cats. We gave them all names. Now, the ugliest of the litter by far was this little black and brown calico female and uh, she, was, she was really, really skinny. She had bug eyes and, and spiky fur. And she was so ugly, we, we came up with a name for her. And we were sensitive guys, you know, so we called her Freaky. Um, and, and Freaky was ugly on the outside, but she turned out to be this really good-natured cat. You know, kind of the anti-cat, really, because uh, most cats are kind of standoffish. But she was very, very, very sweet-natured. And we, we really liked her the best. Now, in our house, the way our house was set up, we had a backyard, and that's where Freckles lived, and there was a, a fence that separated the front yard from the backyard, and that was a good thing because the cats lived in the front, and if she ever discovered those cats, we knew they were dead. She was, she was going to wipe them out like the angel of death, and, and so we, we made sure they stayed separated. One day, though, we looked out into the backyard, and we saw that little Freaky had squeezed through the, the fence and had gotten into the backyard and was just out there exploring like a cat will do. And we ran outside, and we scooped her up before the dog could find her, and we rescued her from certain death. But we, weren't, we knew we wouldn't be there all the time. And sure enough, one day we were gone. We came back home, and we saw to our horror as we looked out the back door, there was our dog laying on her side, and we saw what looked like half of a cat laying next to her. And we thought, oh, no. And Bill and I both ran outside and, to survey this horrific scene. And once we got there, we saw that it was, just, it was just a perspective issue. It was actually a whole cat, and she was still alive, and, and she was snuggled up next to our dog like a baby with its mama. And we, it just, it was so incongruous. We, did, we couldn't explain it that suddenly, without any explanation, our dog and our cat had made friends. This dog that didn't like anything except us 
and this cat had become best buddies. And so all the time they would hang out together and, and they would nap together in the afternoons and, and we would watch them. Freckles would decide where they were sleeping was a little too hot and so she'd get up and she'd pick up Freaky by the head. Literally, she'd put her whole head in her mouth and carry her like a little limp dish rag to the next place and set her down and they'd sleep there too. And it was the coolest thing, but it, it just wasn't natural. It's just not supposed to be that way, right? And I say all that to say this. Some of the things that Jesus commanded us in the scriptures aren't natural. Some of the things that Jesus commanded, we read them and we go, yeah, that makes sense. That's the way it should be. But some of the things Jesus said, we hear them and we go, no, no, that's not right. I can't, I can't do that. That's not natural. And what we're going to talk about today is one of those. You see, if you talk to someone who's not a Christian, you ask them, what's the most famous thing Jesus ever said? One of the things you'll hear often is love your enemies and pray for those who hate you. For some reason, this is something that sticks in the minds of unbelievers. They're like, yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with the church, but Jesus, he was a moral genius because he taught people to love their enemies, and he did. Jesus told his disciples, you don't keep a record of how many times you have to forgive someone. If your brother sins against you seven times, that's, that's not the limit. It's 70 times seven. It's as many times as it takes. Forgiveness is, is unlimited. It, it doesn't have an end to it. And that's a beautiful teaching. Uh, you know, like I say, unbelievers, even, even they can see the genius of it. The German th political writer Hannah Arendt, who was an agnostic, said the, the discoverer of the role of forgiveness in the realm of human affairs was Jesus of Nazareth. She just, she could see there was no idea in the human race of the goodness of forgiveness until Jesus came along. This idea that we all have that a truly good person will be gracious to his enemies that didn't exist until Jesus was here. If you would have gone to someone before Jesus, polite, uh, uh, educated, successful people, and said, you know, we ought to be nice to those people who aren't nice to us, they would have laughed you out of the room. Jesus changed everything. But I want to ask a question. We all look at that and we say, that's beautiful, that's wonderful, love your enemies, but is it realistic? I mean, was Jesus just giving us some lofty ideal that no one can actually live out? Is it practical to live this way? Is forgiveness something we can all actually do? Is it actually a good idea? So I want to look at a story in the life of Jesus that kind of shows this in action. And it's a story some of you have heard, maybe many of you haven't. But Mark chapter 4, verse 35 begins, begins the story this way. That day when, the, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Now I'm going to stop there and just say this. That's kind of an innocuous statement. You think, oh, okay, big deal. The disciples knew what he was saying when he said, let's go to the other side. You know, they were there on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, there in Capernaum, that's where they lived. And the other side of the Sea of Galilee was, was alien country. Because right across from the sea, right across from Capernaum was a place called the Decapolis. That's Greek for the 10 cities. The Decapolis was, well, I mean, quite literally, it's where the Jews believed the devil lived. That's not an exaggeration. They thought the devil's home was the Decapolis. It was a place filled with pagan temples. And, and you know, first century Jews hated paganism. They hated idolatry, full of these pagan temples. And in those temples, the kind of religious rituals that were done, I can't even speak of them in front of children. I mean, it's, it's, it's evil. It's reprobate stuff. Now, as you probably know, to a Jew, there was no animal more unclean than a pig. In the Decapolis, pigs were worshipped as gods. They were objects of worship. Um, the, there, was a, there was a Roman legion that was stationed in that same region. 
And that legion of hard-bitten soldiers who hated Jews and hated being stationed there, their, their legionary symbol was a boar's head. I mean, this was a bad place. If you were a Jewish man, if you were one of these 13 people, Jesus and his 12 disciples, to go into the Decapolis and walk around preaching a message of love and graciousness was as crazy an idea as a cat going into a yard with a big angry dog. And yet that's exactly what Jesus said to do, which leads us to believe. Maybe Jesus didn't see things in terms of their side and our side. Maybe to Jesus, those kinds of barriers and those kinds of distinctions just didn't make any sense. So Jesus and his disciples went over in their, in their boat, and, and we'll skip over this part, but on the way, they hit this, this terrible storm. I mean, it was so bad, these, these well-trained men of the sea thought they were going to die, and Jesus stilled the storm. When they landed on the other side, you know, everywhere Jesus went, he was followed by crowds, and he would get in a boat, and he'd go to the other side of the lake, and, and people would be there to wait for him, to, to greet him. Everywhere he went, he was followed by throngs, but when he landed on the Decapolis, no one was there except one. One person came to meet him, and it was not the guy they wanted. See, there was a notorious man who lived in the region of the Decapolis. He was known all over that area because he was deeply demon-possessed. And I do believe that when the scriptures talk about demon possession, they're not talking about some primitive way of, of uh, mentioning mental illness. I think they're talking about a real thing. There were real forces of evil that were inhabiting these people. And that's what was happening to this guy. And they had messed with his wiring so, so terribly that he was just incredibly disturbed. He was so strong. I mean, the people of the city had tried to chain him up for his own protection, and he had broken the chains. And finally, they just left him alone. He lived among the tombs because he wanted to be left alone. No one would go out there because it was thought to be haunted. So just imagine this man running around all day, wandering among those tombs with nothing on, cutting himself with stones, crying out in a mournful voice. Can you imagine a more pitiful existence? And he's the one who greets Jesus and his disciples. And I bet, I'd be willing to bet money if I were a betting man, that the disciples took one look at him and said, okay, Lord, I know we just got off of a big storm, but let's get back in the boat and go back. Let's take our chances with the sea. I don't want to face this guy. But Jesus looked at him, and he saw something they didn't. And this always reminds me, whenever I come to this part of the Bible, it reminds me of when I was in seminary, I took a class on the Gospel of Mark, a whole semester just studying this book. And it was taught by a man named Dr. Jack McGorman. Perhaps some of you have heard of him. Dr. McGorman was actually originally from Nova Scotia. He spoke with this thick Scottish brogue. It was beautiful to listen to. I could have listened to him talk all day. I remember one time he said, he was talking about gluttony. He said, more men have died from a fork in the mouth than from a knife in the back. Enjoy your lunch later on, by the way. <laughs> Dr. McCormick was, was a wonderful man, and we loved every day of that class. But when we got to this portion, chapters 4 and 5 and 6 of Mark, he told us a story about his daughter. Uh, Dr. McCormick's daughter, one of his daughters, uh, had been this beautiful, very vibrant, committed Christian girl. And as a young adult, she had suffered a some extreme heartbreak and suddenly something inside her snapped and she had a, a, a tremendous mental breakdown and from then on she was never the same. From then on she was just incredibly mentally ill. And it was to the extent that they had to, they had to kick her out of their home because he, she kept trying to harm her mother, Dr. McGorman's wife, 
Um, and so they, they didn't have any contact with her. They tried to keep up with her, but the, basically the only contact they had with her daughter was on occasion the police would call and say she's been arrested again or, or the hospital would call and say she's been beaten up again. That's, that's how they'd know where their daughter was. They had, they had possession, they had uh, custody of two little boys that were her sons that had been uh, the result of one-night stands with these cruel men she would meet in bars that would take advantage of her. These were, these were elderly people, should have been living in the golden years of their lives, and, and they're raising these two little boys, which I'm sure they enjoy, but at the same time, that's a burden they shouldn't have had. And if, 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 if it's true that a parent is only as happy as their unhappiest child, can you imagine what the McGormans went through in their later years? And Dr. McGorman told us about this, and he said, I, I don't think my daughter is demon-possessed. Demon possession and mental illness are two different things, but they manifest similarly. And what he said was, when Jesus looked at this man. Everybody else saw a monster to be avoided, but he looked at that man and said, that's somebody's child. That's somebody's son. You think about this. I don't know about you, but I encounter people all the time. Maybe it's because we're in a downtown church who suffer from mental illness. Seems to be, seems to be more and more of an epidemic these days. And those are, those are people with needs. We do a terrible job in our society of taking care of them. And their families often are ill-equipped to take care of them. I don't know the answers except that God loves them and we should too. So I want, to, I want you to see what happens when Jesus encounters this man. So here's this, here's this wild man, this terrifying person who wanders up to them as, as soon as they get off the boat. Look at chapter 5, verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want from me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Now let me just stop and say this. Whenever you read the Gospels, you might notice there's always this mystery around Jesus that all the people around him, even his own disciples, would vacillate back and forth. Who is this guy? He's doing these miracles. He must be the Messiah. But then again, he says things that we don't understand. Can he really be the one? And they go back and forth, and people just couldn't figure it out. You know, there, were, there was one group of people who knew who Jesus was from the very beginning. That was the people who were demon-possessed. As soon as he walked up, every single time, they would shout out, You're the Son of God. Don't hurt me. And they were terrified of him, which should tell you something about Jesus. He was more than just the meek and humble carpenter. So let's go on, verse 9. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. I wonder, I don't know this, but I wonder if on the part of these demons, this was some feeble attempt to intimidate Jesus. We're a bunch, we're a big group, and you're just one guy, so don't mess with us. But then they turn around and say, okay, please, please, don't, don't hurt us. Don't, don't cast us out. Don't, don't send us to the pit. And, and, and an unusual thing happens here because they look and they see there's this herd or flock. I don't know how pigs gather. It's a herd of cattle, a flock. Well, anyway, there's a bunch of pigs, okay, 2,000 of them on a nearby hillside, and they say, can you send us into those pigs? And this is one of two times that Jesus performs an actual miracle of destruction. He actually does something that results in something else being destroyed. Jesus says yes, and he sends the demons. They go into the pigs, and the pigs immediately run straight for a cliff and down into the Sea of Galilee and drown. And that's a lot of wet bacon, okay? 
And the, the, the herders, the people who were, who were taking care of those pigs, they run into town and they tell everyone in the Decapolis what has happened. And all the people from the Decapolis run out to this place because they want to see this sorcerer that's done this amazing thing. And then they see an unexpected sight. They see Jesus, but they also see the man who they've all been afraid of, this crazy guy dressed and in his right mind, sitting calmly at the feet of Christ. And here's where I think of Dr. McGorman again, because when he read that part to us, he said, you know, here's why I love Jesus, because I know, I know that my daughter knows him. I know that she made a commitment to Christ before she lost her mind. And I know, therefore, that someday I will see her again, dressed and in her right mind. I'll tell you, there were some tears shed that day in our class. That man, that man got up and he wanted so badly to be one of Jesus's followers. Take me with you, he said. I'll be your 13th disciple. He would have been the first Gentile disciple. Think about that. Jesus said, no, no, stay here. Tell your story. There's all these people in the Decapolis that haven't heard about me. Tell your story. And so he became literally the first Christian missionary. But was his preaching effective? Did it, did it do any good? We don't ever hear this man mentioned in the Bible again. We don't even know his name. I'll show you whether it was effective or not. Look at chapter 6, verse 54. Chapter 6, verse 54 says, see, sometime after that, Jesus and his disciples came back to the Decapolis. Remember, the first time they got there, no one was there except this one guy. Now it says, verse 54, as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. So everything had changed. This guy had told his story, and now everyone wanted to see Jesus. He had crossed over to the other side. He had made their side our side because that's what he does. That's what he does. But he didn't stop there. See, the good news is Jesus died, rose again, ascended into heaven, and a few years later, he created this little divine appointment for his good friend, Peter. Remember Peter? Remember the guy who the night Jesus was arrested, he pulled out a sword and cut off somebody's ear? This was a think last guy. He was act, then think. And he was a proud Jew. And Jesus said to him, I want you to meet this guy named Cornelius. He's a, he's a centurion in the Roman army. There couldn't have been anybody Peter would have wanted to meet less than a commander in the army that oppressed his people. And Jesus said, no, 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 I want to get you two together. And they did. Jesus said, listen, from now on, I know you see these Gentiles as unclean, but from now on, I don't want you to see anything that I've made as unclean. Everybody, everybody needs the gospel. And Peter preached the gospel to Cornelius and all of his household, and all that house became saved. They were the first Gentile followers of Jesus. And as a Gentile myself, I say hallelujah, that Jesus brought us over to his side. But he didn't stop there. Who, who would be the least likely person to reach out to Gentiles? Well, there's this guy named Saul, Saul of Tarsus, a man who not only hates Gentiles, would cut my throat before he'd speak to me, but he hated Christians too, even Jewish Christians. Saul was the original religious terrorist who, who did violence to the body of Christ to stop the gospel from spreading. And Jesus just interrupted him on the road to, Gal uh, to, to Damascus and changed his life forever and said, I'm going to make you my apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul is what he became known as, was. 
He was not only an, an apostle to the Gentiles, not only the one who told us more about grace than anybody in all the scriptures, he was a full-time advocate for the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile. That was his life's goal. You read his writings, you see his actions in the book of Acts. He was constantly trying to make two people into one in the gospel of Christ. In fact, he was arrested and spent years in prison simply because he was trying to deliver an offering of money from Gentile Christians to Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Nobody liked that. Everybody likes to keep sides apart. Everybody likes this wide divide between their side and our side. And, and Paul, under the authority of Jesus, said, no, there's no their side and our side. There's only his side. He was following the teachings of his Lord. Now, can I be honest with you? Can we be honest with each other? Jesus' modern-day followers, that's you and me, we're not so much good at this, are we? We don't necessarily follow these commands. We, we tend to nod and say amen, but then in practical reality, we don't really act like Jesus' commands apply in the area of how we treat those who've been ugly to us or how we treat those who we like to look down on or those who've hurt us in some way. But in those rare moments, and they are there, in those rare moments where God's people actually take him seriously and do what he said, beautiful things happen. I read a story about a guy named Kim Shin Jo. He's from Korea, North Korea, actually. He was a trained assassin by the North Korean government, trained for one purpose, to assassinate the president of South Korea. In 1968, he slipped over the parallel and into South Korea and went on his mission and came within a hair of actually succeeding. He was arrested, thrown in jail, where he probably would have died in infamy. But an unexpected thing happened. An army officer, South Korean army officer who was a Christian, who worked in that prison, chose to befriend this man, this, this would-be assassin, and eventually shared the gospel with him. Kim Shin Jo was eventually released after many years in jail, and he is today a Presbyterian pastor in South Korea. Can you imagine that? And he says to this day, the day that I failed to assassin, assassinate the South Korean president and was arrested, Kim Shin Jo died and a new man took his place. He got a second chance. He became a new person. He came over to the other side. Why? Because one person had the audacity to take seriously the commands of Jesus Christ. One person had the audacity to show love to someone who had shown only hatred. That's what can happen. Now, now I know anytime I talk about this, there, there are objections that come up in our minds, and somebody would say, okay, but there are people that I, I know I'm supposed to forgive, but they're not sorry for what they did. Can someone really be forgiven if they're not repentant? Well, you need to understand there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Reconciliation is what happens when two formerly opposed people come back together and they both, they both uh, compromise in some way. They both give something, apologize, and so they're able to be made right again. And that can happen, but only if both are on board. Forgiveness is different. Forgiveness is unilateral. You can forgive someone while they still haven't apologized, while they still don't feel sorry. You can forgive someone while you still hurt over what they did to you. Because here's what forgiveness is. It's not about how you feel and it's not about how they act. Forgiveness is simply this. It's choosing not to pay them back. 
It's choosing to say, I'm not going to get revenge. I'm not going to talk about you behind your back. I'm not going to hate you in my heart and hope for bad things to happen about you. I am going to choose you, choose to treat you with kindness whenever I see you. I'm going to choose all the time to pray for good things to happen to you, even though I feel like praying for bad things. I'm going to choose, in other words, forgiveness is, I'm choosing to treat you the way God treats me when I hurt him. That's forgiveness. And you can do that. Right now, there are people in this room who, if you were honest, would say, yeah, there's somebody right now who every time I look at them, my stomach churns. It's, it, they make my life miserable. And God would say, the first step for you, the first step for you is choose to forgive. Choose to show them the mercy that I have shown you. There will be justice. Don't worry. There will be justice. God is watching, and he promises justice. That's not our job. Vengeance is his, not ours. Our job is to forgive. Our job is to obey his command. And somebody else may say, okay, but all this forgiveness is well and good, but are you telling me that a woman whose husband is beating her up every day or a kid who gets pounded by some bully at school every day or a guy who gets his house broken into and robbed that we're just supposed to sit back and take it? And that's why God inspired Romans 13. Romans 13 said that the king bears the sword for a purpose. In other words, God created governmental authorities. God created police. God, pre- God created armies. God created people who have the purpose of rooting out evil and punishing it. If you're a victim of a crime, it's not forgiveness to not call the police. Let me say that in a more clear way. If you're a victim of a crime, call the cops. If you're being bullied at school, tell an adult. Forgiveness doesn't mean you allow evil to go unchecked. Forgiveness means you don't hate someone in your heart. See, justice needs to be done, and God created authorities for that purpose. Our job is to forgive. Our job is to love as we've been loved. Now, is any of this easy? No. In fact, all of this is unnatural. It doesn't come naturally to any of us. When you were three and someone pulled your hair, what did you do? You either pulled their hair back or poked them in the eye or... Screamed to high heaven. But remember this. A long time ago, you and I, all of us, we were enemies of God. We were opposed to him in every way. We were his enemies, and yet, when he should have written us off, when he should have destroyed us with a wave of his hand, he chose instead to become one of us. He came over to our side. This incredibly generous act didn't impress us at all because instead of revering him like we should have we cursed him we called him names we arrested him crucified him spat in his face mocked him and his response was to pray father forgive them for they know not what they do that's the son of god The righteous son of God dying for the sins of people who hated him is the most unnatural thing that has ever occurred. And yet it's the whole reason we can be saved. The whole reason we can go to heaven when we die and experience eternal life right now. Because he did that, he was able to bring us over to his side. He was able to make our side his side forever. He's given us this new life, and now now we sit at his feet, dressed in his righteousness and in our right mind.